Jehoiakim's name means raised up of the Lord. Kind of interesting, he was raised up, but he didn't show any semblance of that. This king is recorded in history, as we just read in Jeremiah chapter 36, as the king who cut up and burned God's word. I mean, would even have dare have their audacity to think about taking God's word and just pulling out one page at a time and tearing it up and cutting it. That's what that man did. As we read about the life of Jehoiakim from 2 Kings 23 and 2 Kings 24 and 2 Chronicles 36, and we read about him over there in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we read about him over here in Jeremiah chapter 1, and here again in Jeremiah 36 and Jeremiah 22, 25, and 27. There's nothing good or positive we see about this man's life. Yet there's some Bible principles that we find about this man that we can't ignore. Notice in Jeremiah 36, where we just read in verse 23, we're told that when the word of God was read to him, he cut it up with a penknife and cast it on a fire that was burning in a hearth, so that every page that was written out was burned in that fire. In verse 34, we read something very, very, very concerning. It says that the king and the princes that were with them were not afraid nor rent their garments when they heard the words. And they were words of judgment that God had given him. In verse 25, it says, He would not hear the words of the men who pleaded with him to not burn the word of God. He said, Please do not burn it. Please listen to what you heard. And he did not do that. And as we get a little bit further down in verses 30 to 31, God pronounces a severe, a severe judgment on this king. And amazingly, as we read about the bits and pieces about this man's life, there was no fear in this man's heart. If there's anything that underscores the life of this man by the name of King Jehoiakim, it might be the one fact that there was a lack of the fear of God in this man's life. We live in an age where there seems to be a lack of a fear of God, even in our churches. We live in an age where there's a diminishing of a, the, of a respect and a reverence and a love for God's Word. Oh, listen, we need to embrace tonight what the psalmist said. Oh, Lord, how I love thy law. Amen. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 7 reminds us this. Know also that in the last days perilous times, dangerous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous and boasters and proud and blasphemers. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power from thereof. From such the Bible says, turn away. For such started they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to learn or come to the knowledge of the truth. For a few minutes, I'd like to look at the life of King Jehoiakim. He's the third to the last king before Babylon takes them captive. In fact, it's during his reign in his third year, Nebuchadnezzar comes. It makes him a captive. Tonight, as we read verses 30, 31, I want to preach a message tonight, a Bible study tonight entitled, Payday's Coming. Payday's Coming. Notice, first of all, we're seeing King Jehoiakim, the proxy. He is a proxy king. Notice as a proxy king, we see him introduced us as the son of Josiah. He is the son of this one king. Now, everything we saw prior to our revival meetings was about King Josiah, that he was a very good king. 
if I had to choose a man that was a good role model for his life, I said this before, I think every millennial needs to look at King Josiah and see him as a model for the millennials. He was a good king. He was, the last, he was the king that brought the last great revival in Judah. We read in, that when he turned 16, that he followed after the ways of David, his father. He looked back at the past, and he looked back at a model that he could follow. He found something that was not just relative, but somebody important that he could embrace. And at age 26, in between all that, he led a, a great revival where they eradicated the idols, and he restored the worship of God and the sacrifices of God, and did a lot of wonderful things. And in spite of all that his father, Manasseh, had done wrong, he did everything right and King Josiah took a bold stand for the God but King Josiah was the last of the good kings now nobody knew that at that time that he'd be the last of good kings but as we know how the story unfolds and we have all the inspired word of God before us we know that this man was the last of the king of the great kings that after him just in, within three generations Jerusalem would be ravaged and destroyed the prophecies of Jeremiah would be fulfilled Jerusalem would be taken and for 70 years the Jews would be in captivity and the Babylonians would be in control and all of the Jews would regret everything that was preached by Jeremiah during those ensuing years that they did not listen to the things of God. There's two things I want us to think about as we think about King Jehoiakim, the son. First of all, as we think about what was passed on to him. We think about everything his father did because his father ruled. He came to reign at the age of eight. He reigned until he was age 39. So he was on the throne for about what it was about, about 30-something years, 31 years or so. We have to remind ourselves one thing about this man. We have to remind ourselves one thing. Jehoi, Je, uh, Je, King Josiah left a good kingdom. He left things intact. He did things. He undid things that his father had done that was wrong. And as we look at that, I want to give you this thought. First of all, let's not take for granted what God is doing. Amen. Let's not take for granted what God has established, what God is doing. Let's not take for granted programs that are, that, are, that are Bible-centric and programs that are trying to see people saved and programs that are trying to get people discipled and trying to raise people up and grow them in the Lord and raising up leaders. Josiah paved the way for God to work in the kingdom. He made a decision to be a righteous king. He died at a young age, and yet at that young age, he left much to be desired. Let's not take for granted what God is doing. Heritage Baptist Church is only 20 years old this coming January, still a young church in many, many ways. And I feel like it's still young just because of the youthfulness of our church. But I remind you that there can be a tendency as we get into motion doing things, we can take for granted what's going on. Let's not take for granted what God is doing. History teaches us that revivals are always short-lived. The revival that Josiah brought about in just one year was, was eliminated and messed up and taken away because of the things Jehoiakim did. First of all, don't take for granted what God is doing. Secondly, would you consider something else as we think about Jehoiakim coming to the throne? Secondly, let's be reminded, let's be participants and not be spectators. Too many of us are spectators. Too many of us come to church thinking we're in a, we're in a ball game. We're expecting to be entertained and people come in and we have this mindset, what's the next big thing? I tell you the next big thing is the power of God when it comes down to us in a service, Amen. Next big thing is not the meal that we're going to get. The next big thing is not what we're going to have for breakfast on Sunday. The next big thing is not what new chairs we're going to sell. Next best thing is, hey, we get to come to church and God's power gets to come down upon us at church there. That's the next big thing. We have no indication that while his father was doing all these things, he's 25 and he comes to the throne. His father's 39 when he dies. 
His father is eight when he comes to the throne. He's trying to figure things out. At the age of 16, he said he made a decision. Age 16, he said, I'm going to follow the ways of David, my father. He says, you know, I better follow a good model. I better go back in time, and even though David might be, quote, unquote, a little bit outdated from the standpoint of where I'm at today, he said, what, the, what, the things of God are now outdated. And that's the thing that bothers me. Sometimes we look at things and say, well, we've got to get things up to speed. We've got to be more up to speed with the contemporary times. Listen, I, I tell you what we have to be up to speed with the contemporary times. The contemporary times demands that we need to get more of the gospel with those contemporary people, Amen. And his father's doing all these things. He's tearing down the idols. He's cutting down the groves. He's trying to get people to live for God. He reestablishes the Passover and he makes it a big deal. By the way, the Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ. Don't you believe tonight that we ought to make Jesus a big deal? But I don't read anywhere leading up to that when Jehoiakim comes to the throne that he's a participant in anything. Moms and dads, I tell you, the greatest disservice to our children, they're not participants in the things of God. Greatest to serve you can do to your children this Sunday is they don't have an offering to bring for the 1K offering. Greatest to service we do to our children is that when a missionary comes to speak and presents the need of a country, that at a minimum, how about we just go up to the front with our family and just kneel down together, if nothing else, just to pray for the country, man. And I have the attitude like Isaiah, Lord, use me, Lord, send me. This man, Jehoiakim made no sacrifices. I remind you tonight, church, that David said, I will not offer that which does cost me nothing. Jesus said, if we don't take up the cross, we can't be his disciples. I remind you tonight, we're not in the church to build the crowd. We're in the church to make disciples of Jesus Christ tonight. Everyone needs to have some skin in the game. Everyone needs to have some participation to work around. Yeah, you ought to decide tonight, if nothing else, that when you get done, we say the final amen, that everyone's going to say, I'm going to have something to do in the house of God. You say, well, I, I don't know what I can do in the morning service. Listen, there's lots of things to do everywhere, all the time, in every service. Amen? We see a son, but notice we see a substitute. Notice 2 Chronicles 36, if you'll turn to it, please. In verse 1, it says, Then the people of the land took Jehoiaz, the son of Josiah. Now, that was the people's choice. And they made him king in his father's stead in Jerusalem. Josiah was killed in battle. Pharaoh Necho came from Egypt. He, uh, he uh, confronted Pharaoh Necho, and he got his nose into business he shouldn't have got involved in. He got killed in the matter. They brought him back to Jerusalem. They had a proper burial for this man. And so the people said, well, we've got to have a king somewhere. And nowhere along the way do the people pray and ask for the mind of God. They just go ahead and have their own election process. They don't pray, and they don't fast, and they're not asking God what to do, and they're not going to any of the prophets at that time. The men of God, what to do? And by the way, the prophet that was alive at that time was the prophet Jeremiah. Instead, the Bible says the people of the land took Jehoiaz, the son of Josiah, said, Well, let's make Jehoiaz king. And it's kind of interesting. Verse 2 says, Jehoiaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he only reigned three months in Jerusalem. As far as I'm concerned, three months, you're, you're just trying to figure out what's going on. And the Bible tells in verse 3, and the king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem. The king of Egypt was still having his eyes on what was going on there at Jerusalem, and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to have any troublemakers on the throne. And he looked at Jehoiaz, and whatever he assessed about him, the Bible says he put him down. Let me tell you tonight, if it's not God's choice, if it's not God's hand, if it's not God's man, listen, the devil's going to come along, and he's going to put it down. 
the king of Egypt put him down, but he condemned the land in a, with a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. He, he put them under tribute. He brought his own taxation upon them. And notice verse 4, we're talking about Jehoiakim being a proxy and being a substitute. Listen, he was put there by the king of Egypt. Now that's a problem. When the world, we follow the world standard and the world's methodology, we're putting people in place of service and getting them to serve, and that's how we put a pastor into place, and that's how we call men to the ministry. We are of all men in bad, bad shape. The Bible says, verse 4, and the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah. He wasn't the people's choice. He was the king of Egypt's choice. Imagine a worldly, pagan, unsaved king using his own criteria to put Jehoiakim over an entire land. A man that's not proven. A man that does not hold up the Holy Spirit. A man that doesn't have the scruples of God. And the Bible says the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and turned his name to Jehoiakim. Not only was he a substitute, but he was, his name was changed to fit what they wanted him to believe. Nico took Jehoiakim as his brother and carried him to Egypt. He says, you're a little bit too strong. I'm going to have control over you. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned, the Bible says, 11 years in Jerusalem. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Now notice verse 5. I want you to mark that down and underline it. He reigned, he began to reign at 25. He reigned for a short period of time, 11 years only. He lived to 36 and the Bible defines the reign of this man. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every time you read about where the Bible says someone did evil in the sight of the Lord, it means basically he didn't give a hoot what God saw. He didn't care what God thought about it. He didn't care that God saw what he was doing. He just decided that's what I'm going to do. And the Bible records this man is doing evil in the sight of God. Now that's pretty scary. It's a proxy king. It's a carnal choice and not the consecrated choice. As long as Jehoiakim back to Egypt, he was fine. And my thoughts I want to give you tonight as we think about the substitute, he was there. Sometimes, you know, we, we wonder kind of how we got to where we're at. Your career takes a twist, your job takes a twist. Ministry we're serving in has some dynamics that happen and issues that go on. Or maybe we have some setbacks that go on, and setbacks happen all the time. Everything goes in cycles. There are good days, there's bad days, there's growth days, there's deficit days. There's days when there's money, there's days when there's no money. There's days when there's lots of people, there's days when there's not lots of people. Hey, everything goes in cycles. Let's not get panicky and say, oh, listen, things are falling apart and have a chicken little attitude and say, well, the, the sky is falling because we had a bad day. By the same token, let's not have the attitude, well, look, and we're on top of the hill because we had a great day. Hey, let's remind ourselves there's another Sunday coming, Amen. There's another opportunity to win souls. Hey, listen, people are thinking, well, what did we do now? The friend is over. Hey, praise God, we have a Christmas musical that's just a few Sundays away. But my thoughts I want to ask you as we consider this man who was a proxy, hey, where are you serving? What are you doing? Who are you serving? Whose interests are at heart? Do you know what's expected of you? And by the way, if you know what's expected, are you doing it? We see Jehoiakim, the proxy, but notice very quickly tonight, would you notice Jehoiakim, the prisoner? 2 Kings 24, would you notice this, please? Actually, go back with me, 2 Chronicles 36, just for time. 2 Chronicles 36. 
In 2 Chronicles 36, in verses 5 to 7, it says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was even the sight of the Lord his God. Now, it's a repeat of what we just saw. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him in Babylon. Now, we read in, in 2, 2 Kings 24 that when Nebuchadnezzar now, who's the king of Babylon, Babylon is raising his head, it's overthrown Pharaoh Necho, it's overthrowing Egypt, it's overthrown Assyria. They're the great world power at that time, and of course that's prophesied by Daniel. And they're coming up there, and of course Jeremiah has preached about it along the way. He's trying to prepare Israel that Babylon is coming, this great power from the north is coming down there. And the Bible tells in 2 Kings 24, that at that time when Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Jerusalem, it says basically Jehoiakim thought he was pretty strong. And the Bible defines it this way. He turned and rebelled against him. Now he took Jehoiakim captive for three years. He's on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar comes. He comes on the throne. He says he takes him captive and he stays his captive for three years. He says, I don't like being his captive. I don't like serving this king. I don't like being under his rule. So he bucks him. And then we read over here in Second Chronicles 36 verse 6. And it says, Nebuchadnezzar took him and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. And then it says in verse 7, Nebuchadnezzar also carried all of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. May I say tonight, Jehoiakim became a prisoner of war. He actually put him in fetters. They chained him up. This king was saying, you think you're king, I'm a bigger king. That's what Satan does with us. We might think we're the king of the hill, but Satan comes along and he binds us in fetters. But more than being a prisoner of war, I remind you tonight, there's some things that the Bible says about this man that are very disturbing. For instance, we read over in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 8, it refers to the abominations of, of this man Jehoiakim. It, says, it speaks of all the abominations he did. And then chapter 24, verse 1 of 2 Kings says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And 2 Chronicles 36, verse 5 says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, we go down to verse 8, it speaks of all the abominations. That, you know, when I read that word abominations that, and, and that is tied to this man's life, it kind of bothers me because he wasn't content even when he was in bondage of just doing evil he did things that God detested and God had had great disfavor of hey listen he was more than just a prisoner more would you write this down he was a prisoner of his own wickedness he was a snared and trapped in bondage to his own sins there. Listen, the prophet Jeremiah came to this man many, many different times and brought him a message. God was so loving and God was so long-suffering and God was so patient with this man. God knew his propensity and God knew his tendencies, but God raised up Jeremiah to bring this man a very strong message to pull him back, to get him to repent of his sins. Consider, if you would, Jeremiah chapter 22, if, you, if you'll turn there. In Jeremiah 22, verses 1 to 5, it says this, Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and speak there this word. Now, he went there and made a personal appearance to this king. And he said, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, that sittest upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that are in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. For if you do this thing indeed, then shall there never enter in by the gates of this house king sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and horses, he and his servants and people. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, this house shall become a desolation. In chapter 22 of Jeremiah, he's telling him, listen, if you don't want the king of Babylon coming in here, you don't want somebody displaying placing the, the throne of David, you better obey the things of God. He didn't listen. 
And so God repeats the same message to him again. Jeremiah 25, go there. Jeremiah 25, verses 1 to 7, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now let's look at the timeline. Let's look at the chronology for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes, takes his king Jehoiakim captive for three years. In the fourth year, the word of the Lord comes to him because he, he's bucked and he's rebelled against this king. And so the Jeremiah comes to him with a, with a message from God in verse 1. And the Bible says in verse 2, that the which, uh, the which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the twenty-third year, the word of the Lord has come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. And the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. And they said, Turn ye again now every one from his evil way and from the evil of your doings. And dwell in the land that the Lord has given unto you and to your fathers forever and forever. And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And to provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands. And I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Bottom line with this man, he didn't hear. He didn't listen. And it's interesting, we read through this man's life, and I wish we had time to look at some of the verses there, but we don't. Everyone in the kingdom suffered because of him. The people were under tribute. hundred talents of silver and one talent of gold. He went out and taxed everyone to find the money so he could send it to the Pharaoh Nico. I mean, listen, when, when, when there's sin, everybody suffers. Everybody, everybody's in a miserable state there. And interesting enough, when God gave the message, you'll notice every time the message from Jeremiah or someone else came to this king, it was not just to King Jehoiakim. It went to the princes and the leaders and the scribes and everybody else there. It went to the pastors and the prophets and the priests. He's a prisoner of his own wickedness. Thomas Hussein wrote a book entitled The Three Edwards. He speaks about a duke of Belgium who was known as Reynald III, a 14th century duke. Reynald was a man that was mocked and made fun of. In fact, they called him by his Latin name, which was Crassus. Crassus means someone who's grossly obese. And Reynald had one problem. He loved to eat and he didn't like to exercise. He liked just to sit there and stuff his mouth and keep eating and eating and eating. He just was a compulsive eater. His younger brother Edward led a revolt against the kingdom. And leading that revolt, he took a number of people he felt would be a threat to him. He put them in prison. But his own brother Reynald, he took him and put him into a room, which was a standard-sized room, standard-sized door for a normal man. Except one thing was, Reynald was not a normal man when he came to his size. And I don't say that in a laughing way. He put his brother in that room. He barely got him in there, but Reynald couldn't get himself out. And Edward gave a challenge to Reynold. He said, Reynold, he says, you're free to come and go if you like. You're my brother. I'll let you come and go. Just, you just got to go through that door. And Reynold, as much as he tried, he was, if you can imagine how big a man he was, as much as he tried, he couldn't get through the door and he couldn't get through any of the windows. And to make matters worse, his brother Edward, he would lay the temptation before him because he would lavish him with food. He'd have sumptuous amounts of food and plates of food and trays of food and servants at his beck. If he wanted something to eat, he wanted something to drink, he would just have an abundance of food. And Reynold, his greatest weakness was just eating. 
After about a couple years, Edward was accused of being mean, abusive to his brother. That's the term we use today, isn't it? He said, you're holding your brother a prisoner inside there. You're being abusive. You're being mean. And Edward sang back and said this answer, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whensoever he wills. Reynold didn't have the willpower. Reynold was a prisoner of his own appetite. And just as that man was a prisoner of his own appetite, eventually died in that room. I, mean, I wonder how many people, because of a sin problem, a sin which easily besets them, and a weight that holds them down, they're a prisoner of their own appetite. They're a prisoner of sin. They're a prisoner of their own wickedness. They're a prisoner to an internet sin. They're a prisoner to something that has engrossed their mind and engrossed their spirit. They're a prisoner of swearing and cursing. They're a sw- prisoner of anger problem that's out of control. I wonder how many of us understand tonight that this man was a prisoner of his own wickedness. Jehoiakim was a proxy. Jehoiakim was a prisoner. But you notice Jeremiah 36. I want you to get to the crux of the message. We're almost done tonight. But you notice tonight Jehoiakim was profane. Notice chapter 36, and I wish we had time to read, but I'm going to give you a quick summary of what's going on here. In verse 1, notice the Bible says, It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Again, the fourth year again. The son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came into Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of the book, and write therein all the words that are spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations from this day. I spake unto thee from the days of Josiah even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he spoken to him upon a roll of a book. Now, there's something very wonderful as we look at that. Number one, aren't you glad God never gives up on you and me? I mean, I look at this guy, Jehoiakim, and he's just, a, he's just bullheaded, amen? He's stubborn. He will not give heed. And once again, we get to Jeremiah 36 in the fourth year of his reign. And this is one of many messages God gave him that fourth year. God came to him, and he says, here's what I want you to do, Jeremiah. I've got a message for you, Jeremiah. And he gives this message to him. He gives a word to him. He says, I'm going to give you the word, Jeremiah. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find Baruch. And Baruch is going to take a scroll, and he's going to write down with a pen everything that I'm telling you to preach to them. He says, I'm going to give you the message. I want you to write it down. Look at verse 4 again. The Bible says, Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he spoken to him upon a roll of a book. Now, here's the second thing I want to tell you that blesses my heart. That's just another supporting verse that reminds us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's a great verse of Scripture. It reminds me tonight that God blessed every word. Listen, this is, a, this is a verse of Scripture that supports and backs it what we call formal equivalency, the, word, the translation word for word, to the translation of the word and not the thought, dynamic equivalency, which all the modern-day Bible versions come from, are translations of a thought and not a word. But thank God it's of the Word of God we see, that Pasagrafe Theonusos, every word of God is inspired of God. God gave him his word. Every single word that Jeremiah was given by the Lord, that was what Barak was supposed to write down. So Barak takes this scroll, and he starts writing down this entire message. I think it was very similar to what he preached before. 
And God did it out of a heart of love, and yet God did it out of a heart of sternness. God was telling him, listen, if you don't turn, there's a power in the north that's, that's brewing there, and they're going to make their way down here. They're going to come down from Persia, and they're going to come down from Babylon. They're going to overtake you. And he writes down this message. Well, Barak writes down the message, and he goes to the house of the Lord, and he finds some princes there and some men there, and he reads the message that Jeremiah gave him. He reads the message to these men, and the men, men are filled with fear, and they're filled with consternation. We read about this in this passage here. They're filled with consternation about it. And so a man by the name of Micaiah, who is the son of Gamariah, he heard the words of the Lord. Notice verse 11. He went down to the king's house to tell them what he'd heard. Look at verse 11. And Micaiah, the son of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, heard out, <coughs> out of the book all the words of the Lord. He went down to the king's house into the scribe's chamber. <coughs> Lo, all the princes sat there, even Elisha the scribe, and Deliah the son of Shemaiah, and Elnathan the son of Akbor, and Gemariah the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Hey, watch this. God, God recorded the names of some influential people in that, that verse of Scripture there. I remind you, tonight God's recording in his book right now who, who's in church tonight and what we're listening to tonight. Then Micaiah declared unto them all the words which he had heard when Barak read the book, read, read, read the book in the ears of the people. Micaiah did the best he could to say, I gotta tell you what I just heard. In verse 14, the princes were shaken in their hearts, and they said, Listen, we'll call for Jehudai. Tell Jehudah in verse 14, take in thy hand the roll wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people and come. So Barak takes the word and reads it in the ears of the princes. Again, the princes have heard these words. And the Bible says in verse 16, came to pass when they heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and the other. They said to Barak, we will surely tell the king of all these words. Now, do you watch what's going on here? Here's Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes to him, Jeremiah, this time, because he was shut up in prison. I want you to have someone to write it down. He calls Barak. He says, Barak, you've got to write this down, and you write down every word as God gave to me. This is what God gave me. Write it down. Don't miss a word. Don't miss a jot. Don't miss a tittle. And he says, I want you to go into the house of God. I want you to read it to the princes that are there. The men are assembled there, and he reads it there. And these men are concerned, and they hear the words, and they say, well, we need to call for Jehudai, because Jehudai has, a, has an audience with the king. And they call Jehudai, and he goes to the princes. And Jehudai goes there, and he, and he says, I'll, I'll read it to the king there. Notice verse 16, now, it says that they, they, they'll tell the king this. And then they ask him in verse 17, and they said, Berg, how dost thou write all these words at his mouth? And he said this, he pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Well, those princes were concerned about this man's safety and Jeremiah's safety. He says, you go with Jeremiah and go hide yourselves. Now, I'm just going to tell you, insert this as we go a little bit further out. God was going to take care of them whether they hid themselves or not. Amen? And you kind of wonder if the day is going to come like it is in some of our restricted access nations. We're not going to be able to have access to the Word of God. How true are you going to be as a Christian? I'm sure you're going to be to uphold the word of God and keep preaching God's word. <clears throat> the Bible says in verse 20, they went to the king and to the court. They now have the roll in their hands, and Jehudai was sent to fetch the roll in verse 21. The roll was sitting in Elisha with the scribe his chamber. That's where they thought they keep the word. He said, no, 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 bring the scroll. Bring the book. Read it to me in its entirety. Hey, there's something to be said for reading the book, Amen. 
Go with me to second to first Timothy, if you would, please. First Timothy, I want you to notice verse, verse uh, chapter four, verse twelve. In chapter 4, verse 12, 1 Timothy says, he says this, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation, charity and spirit and faith and purity. You know what he's saying there? You know, the younger you are in the faith, the younger you are in the ministry, and the younger you are in leadership, you know, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get rejection. You're going to have a credibility gap. You'll have made failures and people are going to question you. You know what he's telling you? If you want to overcome the critics, you want to overcome the rejection, be an example of the believer. Don't be some of this argumentative. Don't be some of this always trying to prove yourself and talking big talk and egotistical talk. He says, look, be an example of the believer in word and conversation, and charity, and spirit, and faith, and spirit. And I tell you the biggest word there, right there in verse 12, is in spirit. But that's not what I want you to see. I want you to notice verse 13. And Paul said this to Timothy, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. You know what he's saying there? Get the book out and read the book in church. Hey, it's a blessing to read the word of God, Amen. It's a blessing to hold a copy of the Word of God in our hands and read the Word of God in our hands. Hey, listen, I'm thankful for the electronic age and the digital means by which we can read things. But let's not get to the place where we're so dependent upon the digital that we forget what God has placed in our hands. So the king asked him, how did you get the Word? And he says, well, here's how he gave it to me. So Jehudai fetches the roll. Go back to chapter 36 of Jeremiah. And the verse 21 says, And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king, in the ears of all the princes who stood before the king. And I'm just imagining right now, he's reading it word for word exactly as Jeremiah got it from God, and Jeremiah dictated it to Barak. And I'm going to tell you, this was probably the fourth time he read the word. The word of God was being read. But listen, it had the same potency, the same power. Hey, listen, heaven and earth shall pass away. My words will never pass away. It doesn't matter how many times you've read the word of God. It doesn't matter how many times you've dissected it. It doesn't matter how many times you've studied it. God's word, the power of God's word never diminishes. So he reads it. And I want you to notice the reaction of the king, not the response, the reaction of the king. Jehuda read it with clarity with his mouth. It's winter time. He's in his winter house. He had a fireplace there where there's a fire burning to keep him warm. The king's chair was very closely positioned by the fire to keep him warm. He'd go there to meditate and keep himself warm. And so you can imagine Jehuda is probably at the right hand of the king. And he's at the right end of the king, he's reading it, and he's going one page at a time, one leaf at a time, one leaf at a time, and the king has a penknife. And with his penknife, he takes one page at a time, and he, and he looks at it, and he, and he goes like this. He takes a page of it. He doesn't like what he reads, it's a very thin piece of parchment, and he goes... Throw it in the fire. Second leaf. Throw it in the fire. Third leaf. Throw it in the fire. Boy, it's a repeat process. 
And all the princes are standing there kind of in amazement. We read about this later on. They're kind of in shock and in awe that this king would do something like that. Because right before their eyes, the inspired word of God, which came from God to the mouth of his prophet, when the mouth of his prophet was given to record it right down, that was read already to three other groups of people, now read it being read for the fourth time to the king. This king has the audacity. He has no shame. He has no fear. He has no, no, no conscience at all that the word of God is being read to him. And he's taking the word of God and he's throwing it. He's cutting it up and throwing it to the fire. One word defines this man. He's profane. He's profane. What he did was sacrilege. He committed what I would call the ultimate abomination. He blasphemed the word of God. Brother Eugene and I, I was sharing this the other day. Brother Eugene and I were out sewing last Friday, and we came to a house, and the lady there identified what her belief system was. And as I asked her the question, I said, well, ma'am, let me ask you. And I kind of knew where it was going to go, but I wanted to ask the question. I said, ma'am, let me ask you today, how sure are you about going to heaven? She says, well, I'm going to heaven. I said, how do you know? She says, well, first of all, I'm going to tell you this. Jesus Christ is not God. He's a man. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And then she said, I just want you to know that God made us in his image, and because we're made in his image, I'm perfect, and I'm without sin. I said, no, you're not. And I want you to know something else, sir. I want you to know that what's recorded in Genesis chapter 2, it doesn't matter. That's just a myth. It's not real. That's blasphemy. What Jehud I did was blasphemy. The word profane is found 46 times in Scripture in our English language. 32 times in the Old Testament, 7 times in the New Testament. You better listen to me tonight. The Hebrew word underlining that's used for the word profane is used a total of 141 times in the Old Testament. 42 times we have the word profane used. 141 times the meaning of that word is used. That word, the Hebrew word for it is used 141 times. It means to take that which is sacred and to make it common. It means to pollute or to violate. It is used sometimes as the word to prostitute something. That's to tell you how low the word profane means. It, is mean, it means to defile or to consecrate. It also has the idea, notice this, it also has the idea to wound or pierce through. That's what he was doing. He was cutting through the word of God. It's a word that implies someone who's become so hard into where there's no fear of God and his word. Go with me to Hebrews 12, 16, would you please? Hebrews 12, 16 describes Esau as a profane person. In fact, it's kind of interesting as we read the context of it, even using the word fornicator to describe how low and wicked a profane person is. Profane means pro means before. Fane has the idea of worship, someone who puts themselves in the place of worship, someone who brings worship down to a very degraded level. We use the word profanity to describe someone who speaks very filthy words. The idea of being profane is used in context to disrespect regarding the sacred things of God. Would you consider for just a moment as we think about the word profane, how, 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 how the word is used and what, what should cause us concern and instill the fear of God in us. First of all, would you notice in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, Leviticus 19, 12, there is the profaning of the Lord's name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In fact, Leviticus 19, 12, I think, is actually worded a little bit stronger by telling us we are not to profane the name of the Lord. We're not to blaspheme his name. We're not to use the Lord's name in vain in all. There's the profaning of God's name. Leviticus 21, verses 12 and 23, there's the, there's the profaning of the Lord's sanctuary, his church. 
Leviticus 22.15, there's the profaning of the holy things of God, of taking those sacrifices, those ceremonies, and making them commonplace and losing, losing the sense of its worship and losing the sense of its porn and profaning the holy things of God. Being laissez-faire about, about how they practiced it. They, they were to consume all, when there were certain things when they gave certain, like the, the meal offering, so forth. They were to consume that, and uh, certain portions of the sin offering, they were to consume that. And, and, and he says, don't wait, don't put it off to tomorrow. You're to take advantage today. Hey, when, when God gave them the, when God gave them the manna from heaven, what he told them? He says, you need to gather enough for the day. Have nothing left over. He says, this is sacred. Have nothing left over. And if it was left over, it bred worms and decayed and it stank. Hey, he was telling them, you need to hold sacred some things about the things of God. Hey, brother and sister Christ, I believe we're at a place right now where we've let the world so influence us and our way of thinking so influence that we've taken the sacred things of God and we've allowed it just to become commonplace and we just don't pay attention to God's things like God would like us to do so. Nehemiah 13, 17, Nehemiah had to go to the people of God after they got the walls built and the gates established. He said there was a profaning of the Sabbath day. Go back with me, Jeremiah 36. Would you notice very quickly, verses 23 to 25. Would you notice we see a profaning that is commonplace every Sunday and every time God's word is preached, not just here, but perhaps in churches across our landscape. There's a profaning of God's holy word. Jehoiakim takes a penknife and with a seared conscience cuts away leaf by leaf and throws into the fire. Listen, brother and sister Christ, we can become so hardened to God's word. We can get so used to doing church. We get so used to the preaching of God's word. We can get used to the same voice, the same, the same approach to the scriptures. We can get to the place we're so used to that we're cutting away. Instead of the word of God cutting away the overgrowth of our heart, instead of it cutting away at us, we're cutting away at it. We're just, we're just distracted and we've got other things going on. We're cutting away and, it's, and, and instead of it working in us, we're just kind of doing like him. We're just tearing up a little piece here and a little piece there and a little piece there and I'm going to park it there. And You know, we roll our eyes and there he goes again. He's going off on that tangent again and there he is on that same topic and there he goes again we're talking about sin and hey how, how about we have something encouraging about the word of, i'm gonna tell you something about encouraging anytime the word of god is open it's encouraging why can't we have more encouraging message you know what you want a lot of christians they want a king james version but a lot of baptists want a king james version bible but they want a joel austin type of preacher I was just saying tonight, we have to understand the day and age we're in. Do you understand what's happened in the election and who's gotten in the office and what's going on there? Do you even know here in our own area what's happened to our third district? And Joy just tears it up. He cuts it away. Hardening of our hearts. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would, for a moment. In Hebrews 10, I want you to read with me verses 26 to 31 to see how Hebrews 10 defines for us this matter of the profaning of the sacred things of God. How do we get that way? And how is it exercised? And how does it happen? And listen very carefully as we read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after that we've received, notice this, that means that the word of God's been given to us in some form or fashion. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What he's saying there, Jesus is not going to come back and die again for your sins. He's only died once for our sins. 
And verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which should devour the adversary. Hey, he's telling us something that needs to kind of get us on the edge of our seat. If we sin willfully, in other words, we are knowingly sinning against God's word. We've heard what God's word tells us. We, we decide we're not going to obey. We decide we're going to park it off on some other area there. And, uh, and we, we just disregard it. We're not listening to it. He says in verse 26, there is the receiving of the knowledge of truth. But, there, but he, then he goes on by saying in verse 27, now we're at this place where, where uh, there's a, fearful, a certain fearful looking for of judgment, fire, indignation. He says, when we put it off and put it off and put it off and we ignore it and we ignore it and we ignore it and we're hardened, we're hardened, we're hardened. He says, it's in the same judgment that God's going to inflict upon the adversaries of God. He says, don't think that God's going to be anything less than when that when he chastens his children. And he says in verse 28, he that despised Moses' law. Now there's a despising of the word of God. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy <clears throat> who is trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite it to the Spirit of grace. For we know that he has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Hey, listen, this is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us to validate everything we just read from Jeremiah chapter 36 when there's a profaning of God's word. We've gone to the place where we just disregard it and now we're doubtful of it and it's dull to us. We just, it doesn't touch us anymore. And now we're at the place where we're despising it. He says there's three things that happen there. Number one, we count the word of God to be an unholy thing. We make that which is sacred common. And then secondly, he speaks of it as trotting underfoot the Son of God. We're doing, showing great disrespect to the Lord Jesus Christ and we're doing despite to the Spirit of grace. Three things we're doing that, gives, that, that shows a profane heart and spirit, a profane type of Christian. He says we're trotting underfoot the Son of God. We're despising the Spirit of grace. And here's what we're doing on top of that. We are taking the holy things of God and calling it an unholy thing. Let's go back to Jeremiah 36. questions we need to ask. We're almost done. Is that you and me? Showing despite to the commandments, the precepts, the word of God. Is that you and me when we become selective hearers of the word of God? That's why I'm not a big fan of people that you read a devotional and the devotional is the only means that you get nourished the word of God. Devotion will have you read in certain things, but everything else you kind of neglect and forget about. Is that you and me rolling our eyes when someone like Jehoiakim is preached on? Is that you and I have a consumer-minded approach to the Word of God, preferring the encouraging message, and we need encouraging messages? Why don't we just skip over that and skip over the difficult passages? Let's, go, let's leave the Jehoiakims alone. Well, if we leave the Jehoiakims alone, we're not preaching precept upon precept and line upon line. Here a little, there a little. I just can imagine that Jehoiakim is like the typical church member today who's just, they got too many distractions on their mind. Instead of paying attention to the word of God, they're distracting away. They're, they're messaging away. They're texting away. Right during the service, through the preaching of God's word. It's not a quick something about it. I'm not talking about someone sitting on the platform and sending something to the guys in the sound booth. Hey, something's not working here. I'm talking about we're sitting here under the preaching of God's word and we're too busy texting about all these other things that are going on. Checking the scores of what the Golden State Warriors did tonight. You know what I'm talking about. So he presumed if he cut it up and burned it, he could eliminate it from bothering him. 
right? If I cut it up, if I tear it up like this, and I just tear it up and throw it in the fire, guess what? It doesn't bother my conscience anymore because I got rid of it. You didn't get rid of it. Heaven and earth shall pass away. My word shall never pass away, God said. Amen? Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So as we close tonight, we see Jehoiakim was a proxy. And Jehoiakim was a prisoner. Jehoiakim was profane. But notice as we go to verses 29 and 31, as we close that, notice Jehoiakim had his payday. And thus shalt thou say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned this roll, saying, why hast thou written therein, saying, the king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land and shall cause the cease from thence man and beast. You know what he's saying? Number one, he's saying, Jehoiakim, your heart, you won't believe it. Jehoiakim, your heart, you don't want to believe it. You're not going to obey it. And, he is at, he's in, and, and that's what Jehoiakim was doing. God's filling the blanks for us because Jehoiakim was getting upset as the, as the word of God was being written to him, read to him. And he says, why are you saying this? Why are you preaching this? He said in verse 30, Therefore thus saith the Lord, of, the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast on the day to the heat, and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and upon the men of Judah, all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearken not. Now here's what I want you to say. Go ahead and burn it, but payday's coming. Go ahead and cut it off, but payday's coming. Go ahead and blank out when the word is preached, but payday's coming. Go ahead and sit there and act like you're listening. Keep on messing away, but payday's coming. Amen? Go ahead and roll your eyes and say, there he goes again. Payday's coming. Go ahead and disregard the messages that are preached, the frequency of messages that are preached about living for God and serving Jesus and praising God and on prayer and the keys to successful living and the doctrines of the Scripture and exalting Jesus Christ. Go ahead and disregard it, but payday's coming. Go ahead and keep putting off getting saved. Payday's coming. I want you to see some things tonight. He had his payday coming. Notice first of all in verse 30, he had payday in his display. His dead body shall be cast out of the day to the heat and the night to the frost. Give further meaning to that. Look at Jeremiah 22, verses 18 to 19. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. No one's going to laud him at his funeral. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Do you understand what God just said there? An ass or donkey was an unclean animal. Donkey died. They tie a rope and drag it out of the city far away as they could. The Levitical law don't have any contact with dead things. God was saying, Jehoiakim, just like that donkey's unclean, you're unclean. He said, I'll tell you what, how, how you're going to be. You disrespected me. You didn't give reverence to me. You profaned me. You were a profane man, just like Esau. You're reverent to my word. You're reverent to the sanctuary. You're reverent to the Sabbath day. You're reverent to the name of God. You're reverent to the word of God. He said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. They're going to drag your carcass out just like a, like a donkey. 
going to let you rot out there. He did not get the burial of a king. Just as he disrespected God at his death, no one would come to his body. They let it rot out there. They left it out there for the scavengers again. It was left outside a rock. You have no place there. That was the remembrance. The last thing they remembered about that man, that he got dragged out just like an unclean donkey. And people remember those words because when this was read, this was read in public so other people could understand that. But notice one other thing. Notice his display, but notice his descendants. It says he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 1 just so we can understand that I'm done. Matthew chapter 1 very quickly. Because I have a thought I want to give you and we're done. Matthew 1, as you know, we have, the, we have two things being substantiated in Matthew 1 to, to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. First, Matthew 1 proves his descendancy, traces itself all the way back to Abraham as a Hebrew. And secondly, it traces his descendancy all the way back to David as a king. That's why it starts off in verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He was proving he was a king. And so as we read through this lineage, we see starting with Abraham, then work his way down to the kings beginning with David. And successive, successive king after king after king is mentioned there. Now we get down to, I think it's about verse 11. And notice if you would actually go to verse 10. And Hezekiah begat Manasseh. Manasseh begat Amen. And remember, all this junk that they're dealing with was leftover stuff from Manasseh. Remember that? And God said, you know, the, 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 the sins of Manasseh will be paid for by successive kings. And verse 10 says, And Hezekiah begat Manasseh, Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josiah. And it says, Josiah begat, now wait a minute, wait, 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 Jeconias. Where's Jehoiakim? And it says, Josiah begat Jeconias, his brethren. But I want you to understand something. He didn't have a king that would succeed him. As you read your Bible, you find out that a man by the name of Mataniah, which was his father's brother, whose name was changed to Zedekiah, was the last king on the throne. But you notice verse 11? There's a blank where Jehoiakim's name could have been. You follow me? There's a blank. He's not there. You're not saved tonight. When the book of life is open, the great white throne judgment. If you're not saved, there'll be a blank where your name could have been. And in this man's case, he's not listed with one of the kings. Because you look at the profanity this man lived, I don't believe this man was saved. I don't believe he was saved. God didn't put him there. The king of Egypt put him there. Got enough of his, of his profaning, paid a king. The line of kings would seize with Jehoiakim. They have no one, no, nothing left over. And by the way, just a thought for you tonight. What are we producing? What are we producing? We're producing like us, we're producing like Jesus Christ. Pity king. Pity king. The ultimate abomination was the profaning of God's word. 
I say tonight, let's love God's word. Let's embrace it. Let's not reject the word. Let's have a romance with the word. Let's not despise the word. Let's devour the word. Let's not have spite towards the word. Let's spread the word. Let's embrace God's word. Love it. Uphold it. Cherish it. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Love his word. Amen? Amen. Love it. Wrap your arms around the word of God. Say, Lord, I love your word. Lord, help me never to be like Jehoiakim when I get bored with the word and I get upset with the word and I start to mutilate the word of God. Let's not get to that place. Let's just wrap our arms around the word of God. Say, Lord, thank you for giving me your word. Oh, listen, if we don't, there's a payday coming. Father, tonight we ask that you help us just to love God's word and, Lord, to romance it and not reject it, to spread it and not to be spiteful of it, to devour it and not to despise it, to love it not to loathe it, to appreciate it not abhor it, To bless and not blaspheme it. Lord, thank you tonight. This is the cream of the crop. People who do love your word, that's why they're here tonight. But I think we can go a little further and do a little bit more. Bless your word tonight in our hearts. Help us to evaluate, Lord, our fear of you. I think the underlying factor here, he had no fear because he didn't desire God. Strengthen us and remind us, especially as a young person, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Father, we give an invitation. It's an invitation to draw near to God that you draw near to us. Help us to do so. If someone here tonight is not saved, pray that open a heart and call upon Jesus to save them tonight. We ask this, Lord, of you in Jesus' name. Let's stand. The pianist is going to play. As you stand, if you need to come, let's find our way to the altar and just thank God for his word. And if you missed his word, if we pay attention to his word, let's spend some time with God. You come find your way tonight.